In this episode of the Business of E-Commerce, I talk with Michael Vizi about building an entrepreneurial skill set. This is the Business of E-Commerce, episode 40. Welcome to the Business of E-Commerce, the podcast that helps e-commerce retailers start, launch, and grow the e-commerce business. I'm your host, Charles Pulesky, and I'm here today with Michael Vizi. Michael is the founder of the amazing FBA podcast and blog, where one of the many things he does is help other entrepreneurs with an iterative approach to building their businesses. So, hey, Michael, how are you doing today? Good, thank you. Yes, excellent to be here. Um, Very nice to speak to a fellow entrepreneur and podcaster as well. So it makes a nice change to be on the interviewee side rather than interviewing. So, yeah, great to be here. So I wanted to bring you on the show. I got very interested um, the iterative approach to building a business. Wanted to kind of talk more about that. But before we get into that, what I probably gave a very short intro of what you do. What exactly do you do at the? I know I know amazing FB podcast and blog. But what else is there? Right. So basically, what I would describe myself as is a, an online entrepreneur. And you want to split that up further. I'm uh, an e-commerce entrepreneur who sells on Amazon specifically and has done for about three and a half years. And also run a podcast, so I guess I'm a podcaster like yourself, Charles, and then I do a lot of consulting and running masterminds. And I guess that the sort of peak of the pyramid of what I do is the 10K Collective, which is a collection of men and women who uh, meet in London once a month. And collectively, they're probably doing north of $10 million a year in Amazon revenue. They're smart guys. And a lot of what I learn from them, I then bring back to my consulting clients who are maybe, you know, earlier in their Amazon journey or their e-commerce journey, and uh, obviously interview experts on the show as well. So just the same sort of thing you do as well. Very cool. Okay, so and you've been a seller for how long on Amazon? Three and a half years now. So I've seen a lot of changes and a lot of things come and go. Uh, But I still think uh, people say that the opportunity is gone. I don't think that's true. But like everything in the internet, it mutates, it moves on. It's just very similar conversations to what you had in 20. 2007, 2008, when everyone in, in the blogosphere was panicking about Google updating, you know, the internet's just constantly maturing and updating. And as long as you understand the environment you're operating, I think you can always make money if you understand what you're doing. Yeah, that seems to be one of the few constants on the internet that everyone always says everything is dead at that point. And, you know, SEO is dead. Uh, e-commerce is dead. And they'll keep saying that. But that's really the only thing that stays the same is everyone just keeps saying that. And uh, But it always keeps changing. So absolutely right yeah i I think that's right i mean things get there's always a sort of mad gold rush when something looks like it's amazing and then you know it reminds me if you you know those who are old enough will remember the the run-up to 1999 2000 in the stock market where tech companies were grossly overvalued as a whole but there are many fantastic companies there like amazon which if you bought into it was just a fraction of a fraction of the size it, it has become now so um yeah, you get the gold rushes, you get the consolidation phases. This is just normal business cycles, I think. Yep. Okay, so build an entrepreneurial skill set. That's something we want to kind of chat about. Is that something you work with folks through the mastermind? Is that what you typically do there? Well, it's interesting because mastermind stuff I'm, um, is is uh, really for hard-nosed business people. And actually, I would say I'm not exactly that, but I tend towards that kind of person. The mindset stuff's interesting to me because I have actively tried to avoid staying away from, you know, reading too many of the mindset books and then just regurgitating it. I want to give people a slice of real life that I understand from my own work and or working extremely closely on somebody else's business, not sort of general generalizations, which you could get from any book by Tony Robbins, who, by the way, I admire tremendously. But you know, I don't want to be a second hand Tony Robbins or anybody else or, or you know, Kawasaki, uh, Robert Kiyosaki and all those guys. 
uh, Kiyosaki, I should say. Um, so uh, I, I think the mindset piece comes really back to my old experience as a piano teacher and a musician before that, which is you build a mindset by action. So in other words, uh, it's not a question of sitting around reading the right books and then becoming a millionaire. It's not just getting your head down and working without any vision. It's a question of becoming an entrepreneur. And that's the important win, I believe. And that, that is fundamentally a mindset shift. But that comes from taking lots and lots of action and reflecting on your action. Mm, okay. I like where you're going with that. So you start off, you want to become an entrepreneur, but then obviously there's some action and some process you need to go down. Um, it's not just a, a thing that happens. It's a, a journey. So what's that like and how do you kind of build up that skill? Well, I would say that the Amazon space particularly, and it reminds me of, say, affiliate sites before that, say, 10 years ago was particularly it's worse when Google was easier to game than it is now, just like Amazon was easier to game four years ago, for example, than it is now. And the mentality goes something like, uh, get this magic one to 10 steps uh, process down, which will teach you. Uh, everyone's copying the same process, by the way, but it, that doesn't matter because it magically that will make that disappear. And then at the end of it, you have a business and that's it. You don't need to know anything and you don't need to be a particular kind of person. Now, I think half of that is a lie and half of it's truth. I think you need to start with a clear uh, blueprint for creating some kind of business model and modeling what works. The lie side of it, I think, is implying that you don't need to be an entrepreneur by the end of it. You can start off ignorant. You, you have to start ignorant whenever you learn something brand new, right? But by the end of that process, you need to become tough, savvy, have a way of looking at the world, if you like, that is an entrepreneur's way of looking at the world, which is not just the same as a business person, because in a corporate situation, you can have a very stable job for 20 years that is so microscopically looking at a particular area of expertise, whether that be, you know, um, logo design, for example, or uh, spreadsheets and, and bookkeeping. As an entrepreneur, I think you have to develop a rather different, rather messier sort of skill sets. But I believe that that it's a chicken and egg thing, really. You've got to get started, but you need a clear business process, a business building process, which I finally managed to get one down that I feel reflects my philosophy. And it's taken me you know, years to get there. But I've actually created that in the course, the PLP course that I've created now. But also, um, it's important to know why we're doing it. The, the start of my course is like, go and do some retail arbitrage. And I say to people, this is not about creating profit. This is training wheels. And the reason we do it is to learn the skill set and the actual value out of this process is not the the mini business you create with retail arbitrage, which I don't think is very sustainable. We can discuss that, but it's the skill set and, of course, the mindset as well that you get out of it. So you're, you're talking about a lot of the folks that kind of sell courses, uh, learn e-commerce, here are the steps, follow my, follow my plan and you'll be rich in 30 days sort of thing, right? Um, and kind of and kind of saying that, you know, yes and no, there's truth to that. Um, when would you say a course like that is useful to someone? Is it someone who wants to get started, like they know nothing, they've never sold anything on Amazon, or are there points where you would say, maybe start, start the process? And then um, I've heard a lot of folks that then go on like a Udemy course um, and get some tactical knowledge. Like what part of this do you think makes sense? 
Well, I think in a way, all of the above could be useful. I mean, it comes down to what you can implement and what you can absorb mentally, which are slightly different things. If you uh, let's start with the worst end of the scenario of things. If you just if you get interested in the Amazon thing, because it's still a big opportunity that everyone hears about famously from various different podcasts and all angles of the Internet, if you like. A lot of people come to me having said that I've listened to you know, about 50 episodes of different podcast episodes from different people. And sometimes they come, they say, I've listened to like 200 of the episodes that I've produced 275 episodes on now. And they've watched a lot of YouTube videos and like quite unsurprisingly, their brain is mush. And that's an example of how not to do it. I think um, if you're starting out, I think it's great to take a structured course. I want to be very clear that I, I think that does work. That's what I've done. That's what a lot of my successful friends have done. And I think it does cut your learning term time and you can model what works what's wrong with that is not the course and the structure it's your relationship emotionally if you like to this structure and I'm in, in a way part of me hates talking about emotion and mindset I'm, I'm, I'm a nuts and bolts kind of guy really but I've just discovered that you can't avoid it so I've reluctantly returned to mindset the relationship to the business model you're getting is here's a model of how somebody else has done it this is a starting point not an end point that's the first thing. The second thing is you're responsible from day one for all of your decisions. And nobody wants to hear that. You know, you can't pass the responsibility on to somebody else. And the reason that's important is because it's fundamental to an entrepreneur to want to be in charge of their life. That's the main driver for the really successful entrepreneurs. I know that's certainly one of my drivers It's not just about freedom to sit on a beach because I'd get bored senseless if I sit on a beach for too long. My wife could tell you that uh, to her cost. But it's about having the urge to create something for yourself and if you have that urge then you're going to want sooner or later to to take charge of your life anyway you're not going to want to slavishly follow a model um so i think that's the second thing is is two things in relationship to a course take it but know that it's a starting point and at an end point you're going to have to tweak it to your own situation and to the you know the changing realities of the internet uh, even if it was recently produced if it was produced a long time ago on amazon i would say it's it's dodgy ground and the second thing is take responsibility for your own learning and your own development. Yeah, so you're talking about a lot of the folks, you see this all over on the internet, right, where um, they take a course and they don't, you know, they don't succeed um, wildly in the first 30, 60, 90 days. And then they say it's a scam and, you know, this and that and um, everyone kind of saying negative things. And you're basically saying it's not always, you know, Maybe, maybe it's old, old information, but also it could be the person um, followed it a little too closely or not closely enough, or there's some personal responsibility to that as well, right? Yeah, and I think, um, to put it simply, another thing you've just brought up there is the timescale you put on things. I've noticed that people who've had jobs, for example, as, as general practitioners here in the UK or doctors, you know, general doctors that will deal with the general public before they go to specialists in ho hospital, they have to charge, they have to train. And I was at university with people like that um, when I was doing a music degree years ago. And they, they trained for years to become doctors. But somehow they get the idea that you can replace that living within six months. And that's just weird. And I think the reason for that is because people have told them that. And I just think that's a silly message to send out because A, you're creating a false expectation. So they're going to turn around and say your course is rubbish when actually it might be quite good. But if you put a silly timescale on things, almost all things are impossible. And to put it in its crudest sense, for example, if you have an account with £10,000 in it and you've just ordered, uh, if you look at a, a three-month window and at the end of that three-month window, um, you've just ordered £5,000 worth of goods from China, it looks like your company's just basically lost a load of money uh, on shipping. 
and is therefore not a profitable business. And that's kind of absurd, right? But if you if you put the wrong time frame on things, everything looks silly. Um, so if you put a a 12 month time frame on the same business, it might be that that investment of 5,000 pounds has turned into 10,000 and now you've got a business that has 15,000 pounds equity. So it's grown in value, uh, for example. So in other words, the time frame that you put on things is absolutely critical and there's nothing new about this. It's the same in the investment world. Um, living in central London as I do, I, I meet a lot of people who work in very, you know, in, like deep conversations with people who work in investment in the city of London, just like the New York Stock Exchange. And one of the things about that is the time frame that you put on things is absolutely one of the first decisions. If you're going to invest something for your pension in 30 years time, that's a different strategy to something you want to grow aggressively within three, for example. What do you kind of see when people are starting off? Um, let's say they're working an average job. How long does it, how long would be a reasonable expectation to replace your full time income? Um, and I know that's a <laughs> completely awful question, but I, I feel like it's something everyone wants to know when they're starting off. Yeah, I, I think it's a very good question. I think to give a realistic answer, you'd need to talk to the person individually and get a sense of it. But I would say if you're working at it hard, but not full time, if you're still keeping a day job, but you're working a consistent part time hours at it, say 20 hours a week. And it's not common. Most people get disheartened after a while because they get isolated. So the second thing I think, apart from a course, you need is a community, a community, preferably in person. If you can get a mastermind or some kind of community that meets in person, I mean, uh, but if, as long as you stick to the course and do 20 hours a week and you have enough capital, and that's another question of how much is enough, we could discuss. But I would say 18 months to two years is a good number. And I've known people just about get close to that in 12 months, but often they will choose because they're wise and savvy enough people to build a really good business quickly. They'll choose to keep the day job for longer because they recognize A, that stability has value outside of just the sheer numbers and B, uh, it gives them an additional source of cash flow with which to fund their business because it's an industry-based business. So it's capital intensive. And that's something right there, people um, getting into something like e-commerce, you don't realize how capital intensive it is. Um, and having that, yeah, I think that's having that day job, having some sort of way to keep investing and re-upping, and you need to, you know, depending on, and I should, we should probably talk about the initial investment, but depending on what you do there, you're going to need more and more and more to get to your um, at least full-time income, let's say. And exactly, I mean. Yeah, look, let's come up with another analogy. This is dodgy ground because I'm not a gardener, right? But everybody knows that if you plant a few seeds, uh, and I understand this literally happens in the poorest countries in the world, you know, they get seed hands out and they eat the seeds. And of course, they're going to starve next month. Uh, if you plant a tree, it's no good trying to go and eat the fruit uh, after three months. You plant it, even a fast growing tree, you're going to plant it, you're going to water it, you're going to put time and energy and probably money if you're employing a gardener into it and then after you know two three years you can start harvesting the fruit and you've got to you've got to, the first sort of business is to grow a business and then protect it and then the second thing is you can start getting the fruits of your labors um and it's kind of obvious in pretty much any part of life but somehow people seem to treat amazon specifically and e-commerce generally at this point in time like it bypasses normal rules of life and business and i just find that um disingenuous i just want to be honest it's a business like any other i mean the growth potential is unbelievable amazon is uh delivering shoppers to your door it, you've got to fight for a piece of the pie but i've had some the the, the probably the highest earning member of the 10k collective it's probably doubled his um monthly revenue and he came in with two hundred fifty thousand pounds a month in revenue so about a you know uh, north of 
what would that be in dollars? North of $4 million a year in, in revenue. He's doubled that in a year. Yep. Uh, but you do need to find extra money if you're going to double things. So uh, it's it's amazing, but it takes real work and real capital, you know. Yeah, it's one of those things that I see this all the time on online forums. Um, you know, people posting questions on, I launched my I launched my store, you know, three days ago. I haven't gone any sales yet. Should I close it down? Like, <laughs> really? Is that, the, is that the time frame we're three, working with here? Um, three days. I mean, but that's so, uh, that's so shocking. But that's actually kind of not surprising in a way, is it? I mean, because we're used to that kind of insanity. I mean, yeah, a bit of patience is required in life. I mean, that's just how it is. And I, I wish I could say otherwise. Listen, if I could make somebody, a guy could promise reliably to launch somebody into freedom from their day job within three to six months, I would promise it. But because it would be a much easier sale. But I, I just know that that would not be a realistic promise. So I'm just not prepared to make it. So you're saying, let's say if you accelerated maybe a year, if you're more easing off the gas, let's say two years to kind of go from a full-time day job to transitioning to something like Amazon or just e-commerce in general. Now, Generally, although the only thing I would say, sorry to interrupt you, know. but just one caveat, it depends how big the day job is you're trying to replace. I mean, I had uh, somebody in a, a beginner mastermind that I run, the Zero to Hero mastermind, the other day, and we just sat down because the, because it was August, the, the attendance was low, everyone else was on, on holiday. So we just crunched some of the numbers and we just realized, well, okay, look, if you want to replace a hundred thousand pound a year day job so whatever is that 120 130 a year you're going to need to turn over some big numbers so i mean that might actually take longer to replace than somebody who's just earning you know uh, a couple of thousand bucks a month much easier to replace right so i mean there is that element that people don't take account of as well my financial goals when i was in college are very different than uh you know the adult version when you once you have a family and you know a house and things um when i was in college exactly you know, Make an extra couple hundred bucks really, a week. It, was it a depends on your personal. Yeah, it depends on your personal situation. You've got to look at how much income am I trying to replace, how much time can I put into, and how much capital can I put in initially, and also how much time capital can I put in over time over the next eighteen months or something to grow it. Because otherwise, it's like buying some seeds, watering your tree diligently for the first three months, and putting mulch and compost or whatever else you got to do with trees. That's, like I said, I'm not green fingered, but I get the basics, and then just ignoring it for a year. I mean, it's not likely to flourish. So you you just that's those are the parts of the equation out of which I could give you a much more precise answer. Then. So now, when you say investment, what are we talking cash wise initially? Um, what's kind of the a reasonable expectation there? get started well i would say within the first six months you probably want to have and these are rules of thumb not exact say six thousand dollars to invest and i would be more comfortable saying that if you can invest a further six thousand dollars over the next six to twelve months then you have a chance of of really creating something that could actually replace the day job um you could certainly develop a nice side income with uh uh, you know, just 6,000. If it's much less than that, then I don't think private labeling, which is what I focus on, is the business model for you. You could try some arbitrage as a side hustle. I think that works really well, but I think it's a lot of manual labor. In the US, I think that works better than it does in the UK. I'm not an expert in that, but I know people who do it in the UK and, and they say it's getting very, very hard to do now, partly because the size of the country is so much smaller than the US. Most of the goods are more evenly spread. There are fewer pockets of, of inequality between you know, a store in, in, you know, the western part of the US and in, in somewhere in, in um, LA or something shipping to somebody in the middle of nowhere in, in the middle of the United, continental United States. There's still some geographical arbitrage opportunities there. Um, but to come back to your question, if you have less than that sort of money, I would suggest that you need to find the business model that fits that and that isn't private labeling. Okay. 
So when you when you say get started, are we talking arbitrage, private labeling, or where do you usually start people in this process? <clears throat> so I've come to after really uh, working with a lot of people and finding that it's very hard for a lot of people to take the leap into go straight into private labeling and that the risk is a bit high and most people don't deal with well with that level of risk, which is normal, I guess. Um, come to the conclusion that you need a couple of steps before that, one of which is just to do some retail arbitrage, as I said, just purely to learn the skill set. So you get used to shipping stuff into Amazon, um, how the Amazon back end works, Seller Central, which is a bit of a dog's dinner compared to a, a lot of websites. It's, think of a WordPress site, but worse. Um, and um, actually, it's a lot worse than WordPress, to be fair. So you need to get your head around that. You need to get used to dealing with customer complaints, uh, refunds, what have you, and um, and doing profit and loss and bookkeeping, just the basics of running a little Amazon business. So that's the first place I would say. And the, the and good news is that when you the, say retail arbitrage, just to make sure we define that, because um, I've yeah, also okay, heard sorry, different people yeah. use different definitions around that one. So. Yeah, sorry, these the, the, all these yeah these jargon words you bandy around within your own industry. So retail arbitrage and online arbitrage are the two vehicles you'd want to use at this stage just to learn the training wheels. Um, retail arbitrage is when is arbitrage is just basically when you sell a commodity and you take it from one market and sell it in another at a, and you leverage the price difference. Um, so I would say, for example, if I sell apples in a little grocery shop, I go down to the market and I buy 100 apples for 10 cents each. And then in my little grocery shop, I sell them for a dollar each. And obviously nobody else wants to buy 100 apples. So, you know, by buying 100 apples, I get a lower price. So retail arbitrage is similar to that um, in that you will go to uh, say your local Walmart or um, Sears, whatever your your local shops are. I'm not really familiar with the, the main ones in America. And it, you'd find something on the shelf that you scan it uh, with your iPhone or whatever you've got, and it's linked to the Amazon seller app. And Amazon will say, okay, so you can buy this in Walmart for $3.30 and you can sell it for $10 on Amazon. Great, you should be able to make a profit after the shipping and fulfillment and sales commission costs. So that's the basic model there. Um, Online arbitrage is doing the same thing, only instead of going to um, Walmart, you can go to walmart.com. So you just do the online equivalent. And, and it's not something I'm a real expert in. The only reason I'm dabbling in that is just to get people uh, familiar with the systems of Amazon so that they're not doing it when they've got an order on the way from China for $5,000 and they're freaking out because some little details got missed. Yeah, learning that learning that even like labeling process and like an inbound shipment, it's not immediately obvious how you even exactly. have to, like how to get stuff to Amazon, um, how that even exactly. happens. Exactly, yeah. It, it's a little bit of a learning curve. It's not that bad, but if you, you do it and mess it up on an order worth, you know, $50, it's no big deal. You, you don't really want to mess it up on an order worth 5000 So that's exactly why I would say it's just like if you want to go and play in Carnegie Hall on the, on the piano to come back to my old uh, business of music, you know, okay, great. Can you play a C major scale? Let's start with that, you know, and take it from there. Let's, let's build the skill set one step at a time so that you're not taking big risks based on tiny skill. That's not wise. Uh, if you want to be a professional taxi driver, okay, you know, let's just do a, can you turn the car on? Can you drive around the corner in first gear, you know, et cetera. Yeah, I, I think we've talked about this in other shows before on this podcast where none of this is particularly difficult. It's all just a lot of different steps. Um, and each one you need to do when you need to do each one correctly, but and there's many of them. And that's really the challenge. It's not that any given one is, oh, this, this is, you know, this is tough. It's not, you know, none of this is, there's no step that's, you know, you might, you might not be able to do this one. It's more together, you need to be able to do all of them. And that's really the challenge. Right. And also, I would say this, that the order and sequence that you do stuff in is really critical because you can waste a lot of time doing things that you don't need to do or doing things in the wrong order. And that's when having a ready-made 
course or guidance from a mentor uh, or from a group, but preferably all three actually if you can afford it. Um, but having a really structured approach really, really helps. So for example, the fact that you should do retail arbitrage in my book within a week or two weeks of starting my course, uh, if you're following that system, um, does not mean that I'm suggesting you spend the rest of your days doing retail arbitrage. So it has its place. And I believe you, if you go straight into private labeling, you're, you're upping the risk in an unnecessarily high way. Because like you said, you haven't gone through the many small steps. If you just get wedded to retail arbitrage because you've got small cash, then you're condemning yourself to a life of a lot of work for probably not much profit in the UK and the US. There are people that make a good profit from it and well done to them. But mostly it's pretty hard manual labor and not very defensible. You can't sell a business based on that, etc. Um, so you know, having an order in sequence um, to go through for the optimal path towards where you want to get, I think is where you getting some guidance really can help you. Um, so to come back to our conversation earlier about uh, structure and, a, and an existing business model and guidance versus taking responsibility, I do think it's helpful to follow an existing system that works. Well, the nice part about that as well too, about that as well, is you're putting a putting a win up on the board of, you know, this isn't just you're going in and private label, it could take, you know, it takes weeks of preparation, getting a shipment, getting that sent in. There's a whole process and you need to not lose faith throughout the process that like, hey, this is going to work. Um, retail arbitrage kind of shows you, okay, with a relatively small investment, few, you're talking weeks and days, you can actually start saying, okay, here are some sales, maybe not a lot, but at least something so you can start understanding this is a process and believing that this is going to work. Absolutely. And you just put your finger on this other mindset thing that there's a difference between putting your faith in the guru or, or whatever course or whatever you want to call it, um, that something's going to work versus um, you got to put a certain amount of faith into and be selective who you work with and get a flavor for who they are from podcasts and interviews and what have you. Um, as I did when I when I took a course years ago. But equally, then once you see your own results, you're not just relying on somebody else's word for it. Now you're actually um, got evidence. And that does two things. Number one, you're learning to base your decisions on evidence, which is very wise and a great mindset, important uh, shift. And the second thing is that it gives you confidence that this stuff works. It does, but it doesn't seem some part of you is going to believe it and some part of you probably doesn't believe it uh, until you've actually got the money in your own account. So I think that's why it's an important step for two, two reasons really related to mindset. Yeah, I remember when I, this is very early days, um, we're probably talking Yahoo stores here just started off, had um, had something that ran actually in the office and every time there was a sale and on that first sale even, uh, there was a, a little ding in the office. I think it was a little cash register. And hearing that noise just kind of backed up the, <laughs> like this is actually happening. And every time there's a sale, it was literally just a machine in the corner and it would ding and you'd say, great, there was a sale. And it, okay, this is actually, this is working. You know, it's going somewhere. So things like that. Yeah, I, I love that because that's exactly what I did. My Amazon seller app when I, I set it up when I first got my private label uh, product launch. You see, the way I was trained was to go straight for private labeling, which was not as risky in the end of 2014 as it is in 2018. But I still think it was um, looking back on it, not the ideal way to get into it, because a lot of the friends I know who had built successful private label businesses had started off with arbitrage. So they were comfortable with the Amazon systems and, you know, it was not such a big deal for them. So there was less of a mental block. Um, the in-between stage that we haven't really touched on yet that I want to touch on is, is really the, the thing that if you find a product type that is um, 
you think there's some possibilities for and I've used the example in my course of the copper bracelet um, arthritis copper bracelets for women so quite specific if you feel for example that there's a market for that you can go the next thing to do after you've done a lot of keyword research is to go and source a product from somewhere and often it will be from China although not always uh, partly depends on what Trump does next with the import duty and so forth um, there's always you've always got to respond to events but mostly it's probably going to be China for most hard goods even going forward because that's where all the world's factories are at the moment and uh, you can find yourself a really nice nicely designed product with nice packaging but which is not actually private labeled i.e you haven't put it in your own packaging or put your own logo on it yet and the good thing about that is you can test the market with a much smaller order quantity than you would at the private label so for example if the private label minimum order quantity was 5,000 or 500 units at five dollars each you're looking at two and a half thousand dollar uh, costs to get them manufactured then you've got to bring them over and launch them you're probably looking at about four to five thousand dollar cost to do that whereas if you buy just a hundred units off the shelf as it were ready made um, that might cost you only um, a few hundred dollars maybe somewhere under a thousand dollars and you can test that market and see if your hypothesis is correct that people will still buy this kind of designer product in response to this kind of keyword and plus you learn a hell of a lot about importing exporting and the Amazon system um, so that's the in-between step that I've also introduced into the course. Of course, it's optional. You don't have to follow a system rigidly, but it's for those who don't want to risk it. For those who are really impatient and have more money and are willing to take the risk, you can go straight for private label. I've got one mentoring client at the moment who's insisted on doing that. I said, OK, well, that's fine. As long as you recognize you're upping the risk um, and you're upping the capital requirements early on, um, as long as you go in with your eyes open on that, then let's do it. So when you're saying private label, and again, just to define this for everyone, you're talking go to the factory, take something that's off the shelf, modify it, put your label on it, maybe your own set of instructions, your own logo, your own tweak on top of the product, your own packaging, and then sell that as that, that becomes your product. Um, no one else can sell that. You are the, hopefully, no one else can sell that you are the seller of that product, um, I guess. And that that's a different discussion there altogether. But you're saying before that, use the off-the-shelf version of that product and try to sell that um, under the main listing, right? Exactly. So to, to pick up on a couple of things you said, first of all, yes, that's broadly it. Um, a lot of the time, people don't really care about your logo um, or your packaging, but as long as it looks good to them, because basically most consumers are buying from Amazon, not from your company. In other words, the brand that has won their traffic and their trust is Amazon, not you. They don't know you exist yet if you're a new private labeler. So that's the first thing is that you can do quite well with that. But you've just touched on the, the second point, which is being able to stop other people selling your products and having some kind of exclusivity. Um, there are various levels of that, but one of the problems with taking an off-the-shelf product is obviously there's nothing to sell, take somebody else, sorry, there's nothing to stop somebody else, another Amazon seller, from if they can reverse engineer who your supplier is, and often they can just find them on Alibaba.com, which is the main sort of, uh, if you like, the Amazon for, for sourcing in China. Um, there's nothing to stop them going there and just simply getting the same product and listing it against the same listing. Uh, so they're basically competing for the buy box. In other words, um, people can see, oh, you could buy this from, from Fred for $4 instead of $5 or whatever the price may be. So uh, private labeling, as long as you couple it with trademarking, which is fairly inexpensive and takes two, three months, um, couple those two together and you have a much more defensible 
business because you can kick people off the list if they try and do that and you can simply say well this is they don't have the trademark they don't have the right to use this name and so forth and amazon will just remove them from the listing that's the simple version yeah and that also plays into the amazon uh, brand registry brand registry it's kind of a new um newer concept right in amazon now that to protect your listing yeah exactly the amazon brand registry works well and you get enhanced brand content as they call it as well which means you get extra images and text about your product which can help conversion as well i mean broadly speaking it's is worth having um so yeah that's the next stage up is proper private label and then um you know once you get more advanced and this isn't something i cover in the plp course because i think it would blow people's brains as you can gather there's enough involved already but the really advanced sellers then are creating unique products and that takes longer and deeper pockets but it is even more defensible so there's a kind of continuum from just reselling other people's products the, the arbitrage model to selling stuff you got from china which is harder to get and find and a bit more of a barrier to entry but easily copied to private labeling which is much more defensible but takes longer and more money to your own absolutely unique products which you'll need to work with an industrial designer and that will take ages and a lot of money but if it pays off it's very defensible and it can pay off big and for longer so as a kind of you know scale of, of development so you talk so when you say build your own product you're talking actually have you know technical um, designs built out for it go to the factory with those and at that point you're probably actually physically going to the factory getting quite a, possibly getting, yeah Quite possibly. I mean, you wouldn't necessarily have to physically go. I, I think the, the products will have to fly back and forth in the mail. Yeah, the I mean, products I will have to say physically go. Yeah, it's a lot cheaper to send products back and forth than yourself physically. If you're doing it at a lot of scale, then sooner or later, you'll probably want to visit the factory, but not so much as a practical thing, but just to make, you know, to deepen the relationship, really. Um, but that seems to be how it works for, for most people. Um, so, yeah, that's really looking quite ahead. I, I would say that's probably for a lot of people a couple of years down the line. Um, it depends on your skill set. Again, if you've got an engineering background, which a lot of people with engineering backgrounds seem to be attracted to this business model, you know, maybe that's much earlier in the process. If you have a product development background, we've got somebody else in the 10K Collective who only started their business about a year and a half ago, but they happen to have a, a colleague who's, who's an expert in product development. So, you know what? It does come down to your individual skill set in the end of the day as well. Yeah. And that's one of those things. It's some folks can be better in the sourcing side, other folks the advertising side, even customer support. They're all different skill sets, um, and you're not going to be strong in all of them. And it's one of those things, it, it is a business, and that's the other part I think some people miss. Um, it's not just like a, a thing you do on the side. It actually becomes a business in itself where you'll need customer support. You'll need some sort of process for sourcing and working with manufacturers, and that is something you'll grow over time. Absolutely right. And the thing is that the bad side of that, I suppose, is it's not just like a, a side hustle job. And that's one of a the side, a side hustle. That's the right word. For yeah, it. exactly. It's 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 um, one of the things that's a mentality shift is trying to build a business as an entrepreneur is on the one hand, you're not working in a corporate where you have a rule book this thick and you have to. Um, you know, work according to very rigid rules. And on the other hand, you're not just winging it um, like, you know, if you've got a job um, as a, I don't know, a freelance writer, you know, you take gigs when they come in, you deliver them, you get paid. That's kind of about it, right? You've got to find work and marketing can be hard work. But then when you do it, you just do it yourself and you know how to write. So you don't have to teach anyone else that. And then you just deliver the stuff on email and then you chase them for payment. Obviously, uh, an e-commerce business or any real business, you are trying to develop processes that get yourself out of the picture yeah. and uh, replace yourself with either systems like the Amazon systems uh, or people. And that's not an easy art, actually, but you need to start doing that from as early on as you can. So I, I'd agree with that. And that, again, is one of the reasons to have a model you can copy bits of is because that 
is ready made for you. For example, this morning I was working with a mentoring client who um, very, very busy chap. He's did about $2 million, um, well, probably in dollars, about $2.5 million last year in wholesale, which is another business model I know you've discussed with your guests in the past. But it's interesting that I've got um, two or three clients who are moving out of that towards private label because it's more defensible, because you can create a sellable business, uh, etc. Um, but he is um, busy working on trying to outsource things right now um and uh, it's not an easy process but one of the ways that i was able to help him he said can you give me some sop lists as in standard operating procedure lists i said actually you know what the easiest thing i can do is i can give you access to my plp course because that's effectively a sort of real life um standardized way of doing stuff you know watch this video then go and do it watch this video then go and do it here's a printed checklist makes sure you used it so again that's where i think courses can be really helpful shortcut because they're effectively a kind of um, video capture of a standard operating procedure and if you're going to create them yourself again creating a little screenshot for a VA can be a very helpful way of cutting to the chase for people and showing them precisely what to do in a very effective way you know it's quicker than writing it out often yeah there's um there's a plugin in the browser I've seen quite a few people use uh, loom I believe L-O-O-M. Yeah, my business partner is very fond of Loom. I'm quite fond of Google, um, what's that, Screencast, which is a free Google plugin, which uh, will save stuff directly to your Google Drive, and you can easily get it over to YouTube as well. So I find that incredibly helpful. Yeah, the nice part of that is you can see your face in the video, your screen, and just kind of talk through the issue, and here's what I'm doing, here's why, and then just share it. Yeah, and I've used Screencast to create a lot of the uh, videos for the PLP course, but I mean, I've used it in the past for... Um, communication with VAs as well and, and we'll continue to do that so absolutely I mean written lists are good I, I think for me um, a written list is what I prefer some people prefer videos most people seem to prefer that and particularly if you're trying to teach somebody a technical based skill uh, to be able to show them a screenshot that they can then follow or, or you know or, or a screen capture and video uh, is extremely helpful because they can see exactly what you're seeing so that that's a situation where video wins really yeah, video, even just honestly screenshots, um, that's the bare minimum at, at this point. Um, we've been with the main business, Spark Shipping, we do a lot of support and talk to customers. And there's times where you see a conversation and both sides are happening and then you realize you're talking about something different. Like we're both literally not on the same page at all. And then you send one yeah. screenshot and you go, oh, we're not even, we're not even near each other. Okay, yeah, now yeah. we're on the same page. Okay, I, yeah, I get this. Yeah, fix is worth uh, 10,000 words, they say, right? And I yeah. think in, in the tech, when there's a technical issue or you're setting up something technical, yeah, I mean, you know, this is why YouTube how-to videos are so popular and rightly so, because if you need to know one very particular thing, you just Google it or look on YouTube, which is the world's second biggest search engine after all. Um, but where the problem comes is if you're trying to build a business, if you try and build a business on the basis of lots of granular bits of data, that's great. So you know how to set up um, inbound shipping labels. But should you be doing that yet? You know, doesn't answer the question of the sequence and order and optimal path for building a business as efficiently as you can. That's where I think a course is a better structure. Um, you could have a course, I guess, uh, that was just one giant list of things to do, but that would be pretty dry. And as you say, you might end up being on the wrong screen. So I think, I think video is here to stay really as, as a way of communicating. Awesome. I think that's definitely very helpful. And one question I like to ask folks before I let you go is, let's say someone is starting any good book, podcast, um, obviously your course, but let's, let's say other than that, any recommendations on places, books, podcasts to actually learn more about this or get at least the, um, get in the right mental space for this? 
Yeah, um, there's a very good book by Amazon Hudson, who, uh, sorry, Adam Hudson, I should say, sorry, Amazon Hudson. He is a, an Amazon uh, trainer and seller who I respect, Australian guy, very direct, no BS, which I like, it's more my style as well. Uh, a little bit less hype than than some of the, the sort of big name American sellers. So Adam Hudson wrote a book called Primed, uh, related to the word prime, obviously for Amazon, which I think is very good. And that sort of give you, gives you his uh, basic take on how things are done. Um, in terms of podcasts that I think are good, um, I, I think uh, Jim Cochran is good. He's another sort of merchant of truth type person. Um, I'm trying to remember the name of his podcast is, but if you Google Jim Cochram, C-O-C-K-R-U-M podcast, you'll get that. I, I can't remember offhand what the name of that is. So that's pretty good. And what else is good in terms of podcasts? There are so many. I, to be honest, I tend not to just follow the Amazon podcast these days so much as the bigger picture um, podcast. So Tim Ferriss is always excellent. Um, Pat Flynn is always excellent. They, they are online marketers of, of some, uh, you know, over a decade's experience. And I think they have the bigger picture. So, I um, mean, after all, e um, Tim Ferriss, famously, his very first business was an e-commerce business selling one supplement. But it was just in the days um, when it, before the Amazon third-party marketplace existed and when Google was cheaper and more available. So he did his own little website in Google, but effectively the same kind of thing. So I, I tend to follow those guys with the bigger picture thinking uh, rather than getting obsessed with listening to 10 different Amazon podcasts, all of which will say slightly different things and confusing. And that's uh, the podcast by Jim. That's the uh, Silent Jim, Jim podcast. Cochran. That's Silent Jim, exactly. Silent Jim. Yeah. Okay. I'll link he up to that. He has a very notes. particular take on life. Uh, he has very strong religious convictions, which seem to come into his business podcasting. And some people will like that and some won't. But you know, you've know, got to find something that resonates with your style as well, I think. Awesome. I will definitely link to all that in the show notes. And if folks want to learn more about you, I know um, you sent over some links, but where else can uh, everyone find you? Um, they can get themselves over to amazingfba.com and uh, that's where they're going to have access to the podcast. So if you, if you put in amazingfba.com forward slash blog, B-L-O-G, confusingly, that will take you to the podcast notes. We're working on cleaning that <laughs> name up. Uh, but we've got 275 episodes. So there's a lot of expert interviews that I would suggest that they're your best place to start. Um, a lot of the same experts make their way around this, all the podcast circuit anyway. So you'll find a lot of the people there that you'd find on all the other podcasts like Will Churnland and and Greg Merce of Jungle Scout. And, and also more recently, I've been talking to Jason Miles of Winning on Shopify, who has a broader perspective than just Amazon on e-commerce. So I think he's a person very worth checking out as well. Um, he doesn't have a podcast, otherwise I'd definitely recommend that. Um, yeah, you can join the Facebook group of about 1,300 people by, by going to amazingfba.com forward slash FB, F Freddy and Beef Virtual, F Face and Beef Book. And um, there are various email sign-up options as well on, on the, uh, the blog. So those are the two main places to get hold of me. Awesome. I'll put all links to that in the show notes. So I appreciate you coming on today. I think it was uh, very helpful to a lot of folks looking at getting into FBA and Amazon, even e-commerce in general. So thank you for that. Thank you. Yeah, it's been great to be on. Um, glad I could be of some help.